Attention all boys and girls. Disney has lied to us all. Hey everybody, welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I am bringing back my special guest, Marcy Pussy. She is a resilience and trauma coach, a storyteller, and an award-winning author. Thanks. It's fun to be back. Thanks for having me. So what are you drinking today? Yeah, well, so here's the thing. I tried to go for my cocktail pops, and so I went to the store to get cocktail pops, and they did not freeze in time. So what I did was I poured my cocktail pop in here. Oh my God. I love it. It said that I could, it said on there somewhere, like you can also just pour over ice. And I really just hoped for a pop, but what I got was this, this is what I did. (laughs) I am so proud of you because that means you drank all the other ones. (laughs) I guess that's a valid conclusion. (laughs) I think I, anyway, it doesn't matter. I really did drink most of them. Well, I'm trying this doohickey. I don't know what it is. It's like simply spiked strawberry lemonade kind of thing. Okay. Cheers. Well, I guess do a little recap. You were on episode 56 and we talked about your book while we slept about your father-in-law and the unfortunate murder of your mother-in-law. That kind of branches into a whole nother avenue. Did anything within the book have to do anything with your relationship or? Hmm. That's a great question. You know, actually, even just before this recording, someone sent me an article and I didn't expect it to hit me the way, well, I didn't know what the article was, so I didn't expect anything, but it was, it was a woman writing about um, a marriage situation, but also sex within marriage sex within a Christian marriage and the ways that she had been sort of conditioned as a woman in the church to view sex and to view her role as a sexual being within a marriage relationship and even outside of the marriage relationship, they were labeling the kind of person. And that's a little bit what I'm blanking on. It was like an acronym. (laughs) I could look it up, but I'm just going to just talk through it. Um, It was an acronym that basically was, was saying there's men who, who actively, um, ingest pornography. And then there's men who don't, but treat the relationship pornographically. And so the relationship that maybe they would have had with porn, they will have with a human instead. And so this woman was a little bit describing that relationship. And while my relationship, um, in the bedroom was like, but I didn't sort of go there. It was a little different than what she was describing the ways that I felt I've been conditioned to view womanhood, wifehood, my worth and value, um, just femininity very much resonated with the things that she shared in this article. And I also, also some of the actual experiences, but they were also different enough. I'd hate for someone to read that and then just think that was my story. It's a different story, but still I went into it. I went into marriage, just like free spirited, playful, quirky, insecure person, right? Like I just, I just have a wanderlust and, and I feel passionate about the things that, that matter to me. And I began to, well, I both began to understand through 
small groups that we were part of, early married groups, you know, engaged groups, pre-marriage counseling, um, that I really needed to be much more domesticated. I was telling a friend the other day that I watched the movie Spirit, the animated Disney movie. I think it's Disney about the horse. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> it's the horse movie. The horse. It's an animated horse, and he's wild and free, and he gets caught and domesticated, and this Native American like you know finds him, and they whatever on, on their journey. And I just wept through that movie years and years ago, still inside of my marriage. Cause I felt that way. I just resonated so much with this cartoon horse. <laughs> like just wasn't allowed to be in a world. Uh, I, I wasn't allowed to exist in the ways that I had been made. And so I guess if I'm trying to now, if I were to be a little more clear for me, that meant an understanding that it's a wife's role to keep the marriage intact and to keep everyone really in the home happy, but especially the husband, that my role uh, first and foremost was to my husband's needs and then to the needs of the children and then to the needs of the home. And if I ever get to have needs, they're so far down, I never see them anyway. That some of the ways that that, that happens is through sex, like not just being available for it, but offering it and how many times, I mean, I don't know how many times I heard like, oh, there's problems in your marriage, well, like, well, how much are you having sex? It's probably just about having more sex or, you know, how many times I was told that, you know, men are just wired differently. And so even if I'm not getting emotional needs met, I still am obligated to meet physical needs. And a good mom, towards the end of the story, I talk about motherhood a bit. I was absolutely caught up in those ideas and really, really thinking that my worth and value came from how much I could keep everything and everyone together. And that included going through a tragedy like that. Oh, it's a control thing for sure. Right. Yeah. There was a lot of sort of dismissing or having to set aside my own grief in that journey to be super present for everyone else's grief. You know, my husband for sure, but even you know, his family members who were, weren't there. In that sense, I, I guess I brought a bit of a belief system that I had bought into. And then that system was exploited. Right. Because that's what you were taught. Right. Like I ended up in a relationship that could never, I could never make him happy adequately. Like I was never satisfying enough for, for very long. And of course, even if he wasn't fully aware of that consciously, there's absolutely a self-conscious like, oh, there's like some power I have here. You know, if I can just kind of keep her a little bit always trying. It's a control thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just the relationship that he had had with his own parents, which I won't get into a ton here because that's not my story to share as much publicly. You know, there were definitely some dynamics there that were injurious to him. And that led to the ways that he attaches today. And, and and for both of us, right? I don't mean to say that in exclusion of the my own things that I brought. Yeah. So and that's kind of a long way to the answer around like, is this in the book? Or like, what dynamics are at play there? And I would say absolutely, just because I was still just so enmeshed, and still so much trying to figure it out. And up until only the last couple of years, and even now, I'm still on a journey, like I was reading this article, and she was sharing some of the things and she was saying something about being in a new marriage where like her husband didn't need sex every day. And like, she felt, felt so insecure about that because the relationship that she'd come from that had been abusive had all these demands. And so then she was like, Oh my gosh, am I not attractive? Am I not doing enough? And she's just like, no, actually like 
like healthy men can be satisfied. <laughs> and even as I mean that, I'm like, really? I, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. So I'm still on a journey with myself in that. And my journey obviously has to be mostly around what brought me to a place of allowing myself to be mistreated. And I know because of the article I've been speaking about in the bed, but I mean, that was the least of the places that I felt injured. So um, why, why did I think that my worth and value came from my ability to keep someone happy? And it's what I was taught. Yeah. Yeah. It's a subculture kind of thing in some places, like as a person of faith, I don't see any of that in the Bible. And yet we'll hear interpretations and or just straight messages around a woman's role that are not biblical and, and are certainly not the heart of God. So that's been part of my journey too, is how do I then separate those things? Like, oh man, then I really have to revisit every single thing I've ever been taught and really see where the heart of God is in it and what's true and what's not true. And I mean, I think I did that to a degree anyway. I didn't just believe everything I was told, but man, this has been a really shocking experience. Um, and I guess real quick, I'll say to you is that part of what made it so shocking is that when my husband went more public, acknowledging that his behavior had been abusive in his own words, the way that our church community, where we were located responded was, was shocking. Like it wasn't supportive in the way of, Hey, let's make sure both people here are safe. Let's make sure both people here have accountability and support. It was way more Marcy. Can you please promise us that you will not divorce this person? Like whatever you do, what can we do to make sure you don't get divorced? And I'm just drowning. I'm drowning, you know, and, and I'm like having to coach people on how to save me while I'm drowning. And yet this should have been my safe place. It should have been a safe place for a vulnerable woman to go and get help and support. And it wasn't they really became complicit in some of the forms of abuse I experienced. And, you know, some of these are well-meaning people. I don't mean to like put down, like they just were so ignorant and uneducated around these things and lost humanity, lost the humanity. I don't know if I've ever known of a man to actually admit to people what he's been doing. I'm sure he didn't tell the whole truth. (laughs) He left some things out. And that's the thing. They never walked in your shoes. They never saw exactly what you went through. No. So they have no right to tell you. They need to be there and listen and offer love. That's that's their role. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time we were on the mission field. And so I would say that our that pieces of our community, our team leader, you know, definitely felt more responsibility for us. Also for some of the image management, like, oh, no, no, missionaries don't have marriage troubles and they certainly don't end up in divorce. And there's definitely not abuse. Like I've been told not to use the word abuse and I've been told to not use the word abuse. And it's like, but why? Because we're one of, you know, I forget the statistic. It's like one in every four families is just like ours on the mission field too. And artists got to where the pattern of abuse got so whatever it got. I had a trauma response to one of the rages and that response became the catalyst for him seeking help. For the most part, it never sticks around. Usually you get at the most a month that they'll do it, but then they always revert back to their old ways. They, they just, they do because 
they're not going to change unless they want to change. They don't want to change who they are. They like who they are. They have the upper hand. Why would I want to change that? So until they realize that that's not the person they want to be, they'll never change. So I'll just say like he did. And it came after um, a definite change in how I was interacting with, I would usually get really emotional and how can I fix this? What do you need? And, and try to like make it better. And this time because of the trauma response I had, I was super clear headed. I was really dissociated. So I just was calm and I suddenly had some boundaries and it was like, I wasn't in my own body though. It was almost like someone came in and filled in my body to keep it warm. And that person had an ability to be emotionally disconnected from the situation to respond calmly, to not get looped in. And yeah, that led to self-reporting um, for a minute. It, and then it all changed. But, for, but, but initially, yeah, he was really pursuing help. And I was pursuing help. And we were, we, were on the, we were headed in the same direction. And then that all changed. Yeah. And that is so painful, you know, um, to... To have invested, I mean, it was 17, 18 years of, of my life, like working so hard to show someone that I loved him. I mean, I, I did and I do, right? Like, I still do. Part of you always will, especially you guys have children together. You're human. Yeah, yeah. And I am just so deeply loyal. And again, I was also conditioned that like, love looks like never quitting or never hold like never having a condition like somehow my my human love would need to be unconditional so no matter how I'm treated I'm supposed to be forgiving and loving and and all of the things and so I think there's still parts of that that even though I cognitively know again even that's not biblical like I don't I won't go down that road entirely I'm sure people would disagree with me but I don't see that as being our call there's still such a conditioning in me to respond that way. Right. And then there's trauma bonds too. And I imagine, I don't know if your audience has heard of that term or if you've heard of that term, but it's this idea that you see with like people who've been abducted or kidnapped and they begin to grow like compassionate or even affectionate towards their kidnappers, even though they're in a hostile situation. And anytime there's abuse over a long period of time, the cycle of abuse is usually like, negative, like bad behavior. And then, and then love bombing and then bad behavior and love bombing around and around and around. And so the brain, um, with all those chemicals going around and around, responding to abuse and love bombing begins to connect that feeling of love with the feeling of abuse too. So every time there's abuse, then there's this anticipation for the love bomb. Every time there's a love bomb, there's an anticipation of abuse and they get so intertwined that it takes a long time to separate those. And I still feel that in my own system as well. I'm at least aware of it. So I notice, I notice it, but yeah, I just, I feel like there's those two things are a little, maybe three things are a little at play. One, the trauma bond and how my physiology was trained to respond to love and abuse. And then my, just my conditioning that like, no good wives and good women just keep loving and keep trying. And, and then also just mercy. Like I am also just a person that loves deeply, connects forever. If you're my friend now, like I just expect you to be my friend for the eternity. Like, <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> And when I'm in, I'm in, right? And I don't go in with everybody because I know that's like so much energy. But for my people, like I'm just so deeply 
committed and I am, and my, I have a high value for allowing people to be human. And so there's an element there too of, it's okay that you made mistakes. It's okay. Like just get better, just do better. We can do better. And then, but I can't control that. And I think that's where I have to, in this situation, come back to what is my responsibility and what isn't. And I, I took on all of the responsibility, all of it. And I'm learning to say, no, no, like actually your decision to not pursue your family towards health is your decision. And even though that's so painful for all of us, I can't control that anymore or try. No, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. The first weeks after there was a clear, like, I'm not doing that anymore. I had so much free time. I almost didn't know what to do with myself. Like I just, so much of my mental real estate, my emotional real estate. And and then, yeah, also physical energy went into this dynamic, like the walking on eggshells and always just being so hypervigilant to, to all of the sense of safety that I had there. But that sense of safety is what I pulled from his mood. And when I stopped that, I just, I had no idea what to do with myself. Now I have filled the time <laughs> with other better and healthier things. But the time I remember was like, I don't, if I'm not, if I'm not just on edge, always anticipating his needs and his moods, like what do I do with myself? And that was so eye opening too, right? I had completely lost spirit the horse. I lost spirit the horse. Well, going back to Disney and the spirit, the horse, Disney lied to all of us. Okay. We're not in castles. We do not have servants. No Prince Charming. They were all lies. (laughs) We all want our money back. (laughs) We really were. We really do. We do. Yeah. I, that's another part. I think I'm also just a romantic at heart and, um, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I just, I love togetherness. I love affection. I love mutuality too, though. I just love connection and partnership. And I'm also very independent. So I'm good about like feeling connected, but like we can just kind of come back and forth. But um, yeah, they really did give us a sense that uh, we need a man to come rescue us and take us to their castle. And then there's a happily ever after. And I certainly thought that I would, be with one person forever. Maybe in a castle. I was living in Europe. I was happy to go find like a castle ruin and move in. So <laughs> uh, if you find a castle, I'll move in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're everywhere. And there's many of them for sale. So tempting. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't need a prince. I can have my own castle. That's right. I really want to have the experience with somebody who, who is mutual and who, who isn't, who isn't caught up in some of those gender roles as much as like, who are you and who am I? And what does that, what does compatibility look like in our relationship or in our home or in whatever that might be? I just, there's still a part of me that wants that experience someday. So that makes me a little mad at Disney too, because I'd I'd also love to just be like, no woman power. I don't need anyone. It's just me. And I don't need anyone. Right. But I, I, I still have a desire for that. I, that, that, I miss that part, the having a partnership or a kind of a built-in friend somewhere in the house, <laughs> someone who can help with things or, um, yeah, just, I don't know, just the person that was there. So that feels different. Well, you got a friend in me. Oh, wait, shit, that's not Disney. <laughs> you got a friend in me. It is Disney. <laughs> that's not Disney? It's Woody. Oh my gosh. 
Cheers. <laughs> no, but that is an interesting point you make. And um, just about our media, not even just Disney, right? Like our media, I'm raising a little girl. And I modeled for her for the first 12 years of her life how, how a mom and woman and wife um, lives in a house as a mom and as a wife. And uh, fortunately, she's, she's her own person. And so, you know, any of my kids, as their own people, witnessed things and took from what they witnessed and whatever. They're making decisions about that. But I'm grateful now that I have some time with her yet to talk through some of our media or those expectations, the books that she reads, the shows that she likes, and what she witnessed in her own home and help her find her own boundaries and her own voice. I'm not trying to now create a new vision for her or direct her a particular way. But I feel like my role is really to teach her how to know what feels healthy for her, what feels in alignment with her and for her to be able to, to, you know, as a person of faith, go to understand God's heart and be able to separate that from maybe some of the messages she's heard and really honor herself. And I feel like that was not what I was taught to do. I was not taught to honor the image of God that I am as one of his children too. My role was specifically to take care of a man and his family. And so I just, I want her to now be able to not operate from a place of conditioning, but actually to operate from a place of some intentional decision-making about what feels healthy and right and alignment for her now as a young woman stepping into this world. No, absolutely. I mean, you want to teach her to be a strong woman and I do that's we all want to be that but unfortunately certain things sometimes tears us down and it takes us some time to get back up but as long as you get back up and you keep fighting that's it that's one of the reasons why i really do this podcast is because i want people to see healthy not healthy because there's always red flags there's always some kind of signs it doesn't just pop out of the blue one day you know, like yeah. when you start seeing these, you need you need to start packing <laughs> because most likely it's not going to get better. No, I was just responding to someone on Facebook who had come from some hard previous relationships. And the one that she's in is better. But as she was describing some of the, the things that were happening, you know, a number of us watching and reading the post were like, oh, better isn't good. Right. Like better doesn't mean good. Better doesn't mean right. Better just means not as bad as what was before. Sounds like she's settling. Yeah. Well, that's it. It was like, I see all this potential. And I, and I, and so, you know, a few of us were like, don't marry or date potential. Like, and I think I fell into that trap of seeing what could be and that, and what was, but also what could be and being such a champion of what could be, but I was the only champion of what could be. And I don't ever want to see somebody do that again. Like I did. I think it's great to encourage and champion people, but then let them be responsible for whether they pursue that wholeness in their own lives. And then if they don't, (laughs) well, now, you know, and you waited, but when people jump into relationships, then you're in it, your heart's starting to connect, but now there's these dynamics. And I think with heart connection, it's harder to step away from the red flags, right? We're going to excuse them. Is it Lady Gaga, her song that like drives me nuts, but I totally get it. But I think it's her. It's like 1,000 reasons 
I've got, or maybe it's even a million. At one point it's a million. It's like a hundred thousand million. Anyway, she's like, you've given me all these reasons to go. Just give me one good reason to stay. And I think that's so classic. Like when I hear that song, I think if you've got a million reasons to go, if you've got 10 reasons to go. And the point, every time I hear that song is like, go, <laughs> then go. Why, why are you waiting for one good one when there's a million reasons to go? But then I get it. When your heart is connected and you love somebody, you're willing to endure and put up with so much. And if they just give you one little thing, you know, and it's so dysfunctional. Or no, because you hold on to it. You will hold on to that with everything because you're like, okay, there's hope. Yes. And if that person isn't healthy, then it becomes the thing they use to exploit your love and affection, right? And to control it. I totally get it. I've been there as well. And it's like, thank God I woke up because mm -mm. there you go. (laughs) It's exhausting. It really is. It takes everything out of you. And I don't want to deal with that anymore. How long have you guys been divorced? We are now, in July, it'll be two years since our separation began. And the divorce process has been a year and a half. And we're still finalizing. I mean, and half of it's done as far as like the custody stuff has been signed and figured out. So it's really just the financial disclosures. But, you know, it's a money-making business, I've learned. I used to call it a justice system, but someone corrected me the other day, rightfully, that it's not a justice system. It's a legal system and it's a profiteering legal system. And I didn't, okay, that's another place where my eyes have been opened to see how much other people will also take advantage of the vulnerable. And I think our justice system does too. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with that. hundred percent. It's a shame. Yeah. That why a a wife and a mom coming out of abuse, why the children coming out of witnessing abuse and therefore also experiencing abuse have to continue to go through some of the things we've had to go through and is, is not justice. No, it's not. And usually the sad thing is they have more power than the victim. For some reason, they get more rights. How many times stalking victims? They make how many reports? Nothing ever happens. It's like you have to wait for something to happen for them to do anything. By then it could be too late. Yes. Yeah. And it has to be really, really big because we've had things happen. And I've been told it's just not big enough. <laughs> I'm like, you know, and you hear this. I, I I think in so many ways. There, yeah, absolutely. There have been people who've gone through harder things. And I've still, I've heard, like you said, people have had to die or be hospitalized or yeah, die or hospitalization in some way, usually to get something to, to act. And especially in California, I think maybe not just here, but definitely here, such a 50, 50 state, they're really not interested in, it has to be a really, yeah. They, like you're saying, I just, my experience has been that it's not about protecting the vulnerable again. It's so just like, I didn't have that experience on the mission field or within some of my church settings, not all, but some of it's not like that in our legal system either. And they'll say like, everything's about the best interest of the kids, but they don't know the best interest of the kids. And so they go off of these, I don't know what they go off of. It seems like just ideas. One idea, for example, being that every, you know, every child needs their mom and dad. And from a really basic standpoint, I do believe that. But, but I would say that every child needs a healthy mom or dad or a mom or dad pursuing health actively. And so to 
purposely consistently force children to be with both a mom and a dad where there's danger, I'll just say dangers, various dangers, forms of it, um, is not helpful to the child. And I don't even mean just in my situation. I'm just thinking of like how often I'm listening and now I'm hearing stories of children being forced to interact from this perspective that they need both parents when what they really need is someone to hold both parents to account then to be healthy and whole. Otherwise, one or two parents who don't know how to attach, who don't know how to connect, who have any form of addiction or other, you know, abuses are not going to be the best place for that child. But I don't really see them stop to consider that. And maybe they don't have time. Maybe they don't have energy. The episode I just did was about a girl who took him to court. Let's just go there. He wasn't a good guy. And she wanted to make sure that her child was safe. And he wasn't convicted of any murders, but he was around a lot. Well, at first she got supervised visits and then somebody turned it to non-supervised. On the fourth visit, he killed the child. It happens all the time. Why? Why did he get that? Or why do you put a man in prison for being a pedophile, but let him out in two years? Like, what? our justice system fails a lot. It really does. And I I have to work hard to not be, like, swept away by the despair and fear and hopelessness of it. I have to just continue my own therapy. Everybody, I'm in therapy. And I think that's a great place to be. (laughs) I've had them try to let me go. Like, we think you're great. I'm like, nope. I still need therapy. Keep me in therapy. You know, they try to graduate me and I'm like, I'm not ready to launch the nest. (laughs) (laughs) So my therapist reminds me like of what I have control of, right? Like I have control of my home and my own, the stories that I tell myself, because there are stories, you know, that's kind of what got me into the problem. That's what's helping me heal from the problem is, is really evaluating those stories. For example, one story that I've firmly believed was that if my husband weren't fighting for our relationship, then I wasn't worth fighting for. And I faced that many, 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 many years of our marriage through what I looked, what I perceived as not fighting for our marriage, right? I would see that and go, it's because I'm not worth it. So I need to be more, do more, something more. And now I have flipped it to, I am worthy of fighting for, but some people aren't willing to fight for worthy things. Mm -mm. It's just a really simple but powerful shift in the story. I'm worthy whether or not you're willing to fight for it. That's that's your loss. There's still grief there, but now it's not connected to my worth. And so part of my journey has been recognizing when stories come up in my head or meanings get attached to something in my head and being willing to challenge them, question them, and come to what's actually true. So that's been part of my healing work. What can I control? I can control those narratives as they come up, my own home space, and then the time that I have with my kids. You know, I'm never going to be able, for the rest of their lives, control anything, right? Like, it's all just kind of a facade anyhow. Even when they're with me 24-7, I'm not actually controlling anything, but it feels a little like it. Wait until they're teenagers. (laughs) They are. They are. I know. This is already the problem. So so already in like a normal, typical, healthy family development, you know, parents are always slowly letting go and releasing and children are taking on more agency and making decisions and the independence, you know, the, the dynamic changes from like sort of top down to coach 
coachy to whatever, like parent child peers, even. So all that to say, like having to come back to, okay, some, sometimes some of them are not with me and that's okay. I could get a little bit overwhelmed by the fear of what's happening when they're not with me. And my counselor was so good at helping me think through instead of trying to control what I can't, which is everything, but you know what I mean? Why not begin to equip them with the skills they'll need to protect themselves when they're not with me? And again, it was like such a simple shift in the thinking, but it radically like impacted my ability to really invest in the time that I have and then let them go when they're gone. Like, okay, I've been equipping you and you're capable and, and they're at their teenagers, right? So they are at ages now where they can speak up and say if they don't like something or they do like something. So that's been a really helpful part of my healing journey just as a human, as a parent, but then as a friend, potential partner someday. Did they ever come to you now that they're older about the marriage and like kind of want to talk about it or are they kind of like closed? Um, they have both had therapy and I've really encouraged them to go there. I'm pretty limited in what I can say if they were to ask just because we're still, well, because we're still in a divorce process, but also because... I want to be mindful that they still have their own unique relationship with me and with him. So there have been times, and I definitely don't turn them down if they need to process something. I would say some of them more than the others have some anger around the things they witnessed and anger in their own personal relationship, like apart from the marriage, but their own unique relationship. And they're doing a really good job of processing it. And I've been grateful to just sort of watch that happen. I know they've got a few safe adults that they can talk to as well. And I'm so, I really immediately wanted that for them because I know that there will always be things that are too hard to say with me. So I didn't want to put myself in a position of being the only person they could talk to because they're going to need to talk about me sometimes. (laughs) And I want them to like, (laughs) I want them to be able to process those things or to say what they really think without being afraid of hurting me. That's another piece of it, right? To my understanding, they will use some of those relationships to process things. And every now and then, one of them more than the other will just kind of burst with thoughts about life and transition. And then I can get a peek into what's going on. And I just listen mostly. If they don't, they're not usually asking me for feedback. They're just processing. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, I know where you're at. So I think um, that question actually makes me realize too how much, yes, there's some legal things I'm aware of that I'm being careful of, but that would have been my heart for them regardless. But also I was so conditioned to protect the abuser and the abuser's image. And I did that my whole marriage from myself even sometimes, right? Because yeah, there was definitely some self-deception there to keep things because I can't, I couldn't do anything if, if he was the one that was wrong. I needed to be wrong because that felt like the only thing I could actually work on, you know? So I'd always find a way to blame myself for it. So as I'm answering your question, I realized, yeah, there is still a part of my journey where I'm grappling with what is that balance between speaking what happened and telling the truth honorably. So you're going to catch me in it even as I'm talking about it. I don't want to, I don't want to do it for, okay. I guess what I'm saying is like, not for the sake of retribution. I'm never going to go out into the world and try to hurt him because of the things that happened. That's not my heart. But I do want to help other women or other victims have a place where they can safely talk about it and know that they're seen and they're valued and there's a community available 
and they're, they're, they're going to be okay. Right. Like I want to be part of that conversation in that space, but the world is just the big wide global internet and information goes everywhere. So I feel like I'm always a little bit aware of like, how do I both learn how to use my voice and share what happened in my home and also um, stay safe. And my sense of safety is still just a little bit tweaked. There's right. Like some of it's like, don't upset that boat. And there's some reality, like there's some legitimate consequences that could come from that. And there's probably just some perceived consequences. That could, you're listening to me verbally process what I caught in myself as I was answering. is like, yeah, I've been tiptoeing around some things this whole conversation because there's still an element. Yes, I need to be mindful of, you know, public access to the stories that I'm sharing. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out what that balance looks like. And I'm so grateful when other people can so boldly share their stories because I think that's okay. And I'm learning how to do that. I'm learning. I'm learning. No, I love it. Well, I noticed even a little bit ago, you kind of did that because when you're like, you know, I felt like I have to save this. What's wrong with me? Why doesn't he want to fight for it if I'm fighting for it? They flip the switch to make you feel like it's you and not them. Yeah. I mean, I was told that all the time, too. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it was made to feel that way. Like, not only had I kind of been conditioned that way, but it was constantly reinforced. Anytime there was con- like tension or conflict, it always came back around to, well, you say you have needs, but are you meeting my needs? And I was never allowed to have feelings or needs unless he didn't have any negative feelings or needs. And once everything was met there, maybe I could have some, but then even then, if I shared them, there was probably something wrong with my faith. So if it wasn't like tit for tat, it was, well, you shouldn't be feeling that way if you're a good Christian. Like good Christians don't feel that way, you know? And then I value like not just being a good Christian, but I value honoring God. And so to have that called into question, it's like, well, shoot. So there was never a place for me to have needs or feelings. In that case, that's when you need to say, well, stop making me feel that way. Because they do like they attack your self-esteem, your self-worth, your self-confidence. And before you know it, you're in this bubble that Oh my God, nobody else is going to want me. Who's going to want me? Yeah. They feed off of that. Oh, a hundred percent. I still deal with that. I still have weeks that come where I just am positive that he was the only person who could possibly try to love me. And even though he did it abusively, you know, that was the best I'm worth or I could deserve. And again, I have to catch those narratives when they come up. And not just let them run their course and take over my mind. But there, it is so powerful. I can feel it in my eyeballs. It's so powerful. Um, <laughs> just telling you about it instead of crying. I might cry too, but <laughs> I feel it. Um, that message is painful. It's painful and powerful. And I still cannot tell you that there's not some belief in it in me. I'm trying to undo that belief in it. But that was deeply instilled in me that, and not even just from him, I'm not trying to protect him in that. Like I had an incredible amount of insecurity when I met him and we just made the perfect storm with his dysfunction and my dysfunction. Yeah. And I had a lot to feed on (laughs) in that regard. I had a lot to feed on. And then I, I guess what I can share too, is that closer to the end, I had been working in a, in a company for a few years online. And in that position, when I started that role, I didn't feel adequate. I I didn't, I still had no worth, right? Like I just taken on this new job and I have no worth, but 
the people I worked with saw things in me and they really encouraged me and put me in places that stretched me. And then I got to experience for myself, like, oh, I'm really good at this. I'm a really great story coach. I'm a really great person to help with story development, publishing, with telling your own healing story. Like I'm good at it. I'm 41. And to say that I'm good at something has taken just about this long. But it was from being around people who knew how to value each other and see good in each other and then champion that good. And then like believe for you until you could believe for yourself. I would kind of joke that way. Like I just borrowed their belief for a while. Like I didn't believe it, but they did. So I'll just lean into that until I could believe it for myself. And I would say that was a good three years of growing in some sense of confidence and worth that I could contribute something to the world that was good, that I had skills that were good, that, that helped people. And that, that began to impact my marriage. That confidence changed the power dynamic. Yeah. They don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, well, he he, actually, he had enough awareness one day to kind of allude to that. He started with like, I'm so proud of how much you've grown. And I kind of challenged like, are you like, I feel like it's probably hard. And he was able to come back around and say, no, you're right. It is kind of hard. And then, you know, the conversation continued into a place that was eye opening for me to see truly the more that I developed and grew in my sense of self, that the more that also meant that there were places I could go in the world. He wasn't my only source of worth and value. And that became really disruptive to our relationship, which I'm like was already disrupted, but it disrupted the normal flow cycle that we had. And I think that's part of what led to the things that led to the end. I'd still be in it. I think otherwise. Yeah. But for the gift of community to come alongside and see something good in me. And so I would say that to everyone who's listening to to be both a belonging space for others and to be willing to find belonging spaces is such a cure to our insecurities and our lack of self-worth. There is somebody in the world who needs what you have to offer, who values what you have to offer. And as long as we're only looking for that in one person, we're going to miss all those other people who, who value us and see such good in us. And when you can expand that a bit, it really put yourself out there. And I don't mean romantically. I just mean like in community and friendship, how it has such a powerful effect on our psyche and on how we view ourselves. Positive reinforcement can completely change your life. Oh my word. A hundred percent. Like I, I had no idea, you know, no idea. Now I'm awake. You're broken. You need to allow yourself time to heal. There's no time frame. People are like, okay, I got to get back out there. I got to do this. I got to do that. No, you don't. You need to work on yourself. You need to refine yourself, feel confident, feel beautiful, and then go out and kick some ass. There's no time frame. No time frame on that. Take as much time as you need. And there is no such thing as perfect. There, It doesn't exist. So don't try to be perfect because you're never going to be. <laughs> yes. It's so real. And I, you know what? I've got really healthy friendships for the first time in my life. Like all of my friendships are impacted. I think I used to take a kind of anxious energy to all of them a little bit, a little bit anxious to like, Oh, are you going to like me? And if I do something wrong, are we going to still be friends? Like I just took that to a number of places. And because I've done some really good healing work and self development, like personal development, I have a coach who has literally changed. And I've even said saved my life. 
by being willing to dive into how I've been wired and show me the strengths in that and the value in that. And that now allows me to show up to every friendship I have with set, like, I just get to show up because I love them. I don't need anything back, right? Like if I get something back, like, oh, it's like a cherry on top. But just the fact that, that they, that they're in my world. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And then you're, and then you attract those kinds of people too, right? Like, I think that's the other part is I also have a group of people who are like that too. And so we just, I don't know. I just feel like we make each other shine and we have, there's so much space to be on a journey and broken. I've cried with them. I've laughed with them. I've been panic attacks with them (laughs) and they with me. And it's this, it's like, it's so safe. And I've never had, I feel this in my eyeballs again too. I've never had that kind of safety with other humans because I didn't, I didn't off, I didn't bring it in a sense. Like as much as I was unconditionally welcoming of everyone, I'm sure my own sense, like anxious presence in that regard, like wasn't safe to people. And so, yeah, I just, I feel like as much as everything before now is I'm going to grieve it probably forever to varying degrees. The, the gifts I've been given in exchange are tremendous. And I can cry every day in gratitude for the, the way that I get to see myself now so much better. I'm, I'm on a journey. I'll probably die still needing to see myself better, but it's at least 180 degrees different, a complete flip. And to be able to have healthy relationships. Yeah. So I'm excited for this next chapter of life because I get to go in it a different person, a healthy person or a growing to be healthier person. <laughs> Oh my God. No, I, you know what I want? I just no. want to, I just want to be accepting no. of myself. I feel like I have to add a disclaimer there. Like there, people will cough out like, this is just me and you have to deal with it. Like, no, I'm, I'm always going to be a person on a growth path, but I have just been so critical of me for so long. And so I don't want to be perfect. I just want to love. And that's the journey I'm going to be on for a while. That's the journey you should be on. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And that's also not like in our Christian language, you know, where I, where I came from, like self-love is kind of like, Oh gosh, that's a big no, no. But I, I think, ah, I think we just do extremes, right? We can absolutely, there's a self-love that should be no, no. Right. But that's like what we call narcissism and like ego overdrive. But there's also this place where we are, again, I'm speaking from a faith perspective, like I'm a created being with purpose and with calling and with design and intentionality. Why would I be told not to love that about myself? Why would I be told that it's not worth investing in or paying attention to or honoring? And I think that's where some of those messages that I heard early on missed the heart of God. I don't think that's his heart. I don't see that in the Bible, but it became part of this like fear that if I began to like myself at all, then I might end up down this narcissistic path versus like, actually, we've just created a bunch of empty broken, sad, worthless feeling people because they've been told they're not allowed to self-care, self-love. They're just supposed to keep sacrificing themselves for the good of another, even if it kills them because Jesus died. And again, I think that's such poor theology. I think it's just horrible theology, but that's, you know, take it to your own, <laughs> take that to your own Bible, your own faith experience and figure that one out. But I'm learning to accept the idea of self-love as something that's holy and sacred and healthy and importance versus satanic. <laughs> <laughs> That's way far from a narcissist. <laughs> yep. And I found too that when people did try to genuinely love me, I had so much doubt about it because I didn't love myself to your point. So I think we both 
attract people who will exploit that. But also we cannot even experience the love of others, cannot, even if they're giving it genuinely, if we don't have it for ourselves first, because we will always question it, doubt it, dismiss it, you know, be weird about it. (laughs) But if we love ourselves and then someone comes and loves us, that's like alignment now. Like, look, we both love me. That's great. Like, (laughs) hashtag not narcissistic, just (laughs) Oh my God. Not in that way. I mean, yeah, but I just think that's such like a part of relationship is that mutual mutual exchange of valuing, you know, a valuing of self and valuing of others. And I know that I have friends who are so good at valuing and honoring themselves. And it's it's ah, so powerful to watch someone live so, so healthy from that place of like, I'm in a loving, I'm in a friendship, like I'm in a loving friendship with you. And because I love you, I'm going to uphold this boundary so it doesn't become a problem for us. You know, whereas like boundaries to me were like, I did something wrong. And no, they're really just like, I love you enough to say that I don't like this <laughs> or I need a, I need a break or I need whatever. Like I'm wired this way and I need that. And then and I, it's helped me to, to, again, change the story from, oh, I did something wrong because you're wired like you are and you're different than me to like, oh, you're just different than me and you still love me while you're different. And that's like, Ah, there's such small nuanced type things, but they're so monumental at the same time that that little shift allows me to have friends who take a week from texting me because whatever. And in the past, I'd be like, <laughs> what I do wrong? How do I fix it? Is it me? You know, and that might kind of flare up, but I catch it real quick. And I'm like, nothing. They just, they're like, or I'll do the same thing in return. Like I'm an introvert. So I might not always be that responsive to people. And then they'll misinterpret that and so there's like a journey there of communicating like no my love for you actually hasn't changed at all I just am an introvert <laughs> I don't answer the phone <laughs> I don't answer the phone I hate the phone there's one person that I will consistently answer the phone for maybe two no there's maybe three and nobody else like if, if I can help it and man you know people can begin to pull a message from that and so it's interesting to be on this side of some of those things where somebody's like you hate me you don't answer the phone I'm like Oh, no, no, I actually love you, but I'm an introvert. And then I can send you 10 memes on why I won't answer the phone. I've done that to one poor girl. I was like, here, let me send you 10 memes that adequately represent my experience with phone calls. <laughs> and I think she's only tried to call once or twice since. And then I'm like, silly girl, I'm not going to answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I guess if I were to sum up all of this again, and I think this is just as true for the story of my mother-in-law and the TEDx talk that I gave um, connected to her murder was all about perception and how our brain perceives danger is different one from another, right? Like how our brain interprets the things that are happening around us is relatively unique to us. And the more that we can be aware of those stories that we just hear and operate from, but the more we can like slow that process down and go, Oh, there's a story or there's, there's a belief or a message and like kind of grab it, look at it and challenge it. I think the healthier we become because we have so many default messages that are false as all get out. And yet we just live as though they're true because we've never stopped to ask them. So that would be my encouragement. I know it's easier said than done a little bit, but man, even if you just took that away from this, like, wow, okay, today I'm going to try to pay attention to where I feel something maybe a little icky in my body or my mind or my mood changes and ask, be curious about it. What happened? What changed? And I'll try to chase that down sometimes. I'll just notice that I feel something. I don't even know what. And I'll try to like go through my day and, oh, you know, it was when so-and-so made this comment somewhere. It just kind of like ruffled me funny. Why? 
And then I'll hear, oh, I have like a message connected to that or a story connected and I need to deal with it. And then it like all resolves itself. But how often do we just go through our days, just keep going and never stopping to bring our curiosity to some of those shifts and how we're feeling or experiencing life. So in the last episode, you talked about missed deaths and that really just made a huge light bulb because I never looked at it that way. And I think that happens a lot within relationships. You lose who you are and that's what it is. We miss the red flags and we miss death of who we were. I haven't stopped thinking of that since the last episode when you said that. Glad to hear that. I don't even remember saying it, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> I had my cocktail pop, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, but as I mean, as you're saying that, yeah, you're right. I think that we die to ourselves in little ways every time that we don't stop to listen and we just act. And there's so many people hurting in this world right now, and it's a weird, hard world. There's so much, so much coming against us. I spent two hours last night, maybe three working on a response to post on someone's comment on Facebook. And I just kept overthinking it. I posted it. I edited it. I edited it. I edited it. I deleted it. And it's just like, I wish instead I had just asked myself different questions, maybe like, because <laughs> kind of what got me at the end to finally put it down was like, this is actually going to change nobody's mind or experience. The people on here who are angsty, they just want to be angsty. I'm not going to say anything to make them less angsty, you know, and I hate conflict. So I'm not trying to go find it either. They just were wrong, you know, and I, <laughs> so I was going to tell them. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but I had to sit with myself. Like part of what took so long is like, there is a different level of slowness when we stop to bring our curiosity to some of those. Like in the past, I think I probably would have just posted it. I probably would have just felt the weird feelings I didn't really understand, which would have been, you know, doubt around whether that was the best idea, fear of any repercussions as people would want to respond. And I would just keep that with me. And then of course they would have responded and then I'd have all this like anxiety around the answers or whatever. And instead I just, I just stuck with it and kept asking myself, like, what is your goal here? What is your goal here? Is this going to serve your purpose? Is this going to serve you? And one of the reasons I finally deleted it was I thought, you know what? Even if I'm learning, so this was partly connected to me learning to speak up also, right? Like I don't want to be silent on something that matters when other people are being brave to speak up. But at the same time, I hate conflict, but I don't want to be complicit. And, you know, so I'm like, "Eh, eh, speak up or don't speak up, speak up or don't speak up. And my final decision-making factor was this will just make me remain anxious for the next few days. Like every time I get on Facebook, I'm going to be anxious if there's a new notification because what if it's some angry person who doesn't like the facts I drop? And it just wasn't worth it to me. And so did I, did I make the right decision or not? I don't know. I mean, is the right thing to speak up and not be afraid of conflict and just say the things? Yeah, maybe to some people. But for me in that moment, my decision making factor was, you know, I'm going to actually just do something that's better for me. And I'm not used to doing that. You know, it took me three hours to get there and like 15 edits of a post I'd finally published. Um, but it was like midnight. So I don't think anyone read it. <laughs> Maybe one person did. And they're like, where'd that go? It's changed. Now it's just gone. I do that too. Don't feel bad. I overthink everything. <laughs> I think it's just a woman thing. I mean, I didn't wake up today going, how are people responding to the truth bomb I dropped yesterday? And that felt, that felt good to me. In the past, I would have just been like, nope. My value is that people should speak up on truthful things and I'll just deal with the consequence of angry people. And you don't have to. 
You don't have to, world. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. It's not healthy. Yes. So I did not die to myself in that way. Since you brought that up, that was that was like a small death. I didn't die. But I, I appreciate the process and I hope that does speed up. But again, like in the past, I would have lost more than three hours of my life to fretting over people responding. And now I didn't I didn't put myself in that position. So yeah. And there's a lot of things. There's a, there is a conditioning in our society around our place in the world as women. We have a very tight wiggle room to, you know, societally to be perceived as good or valuable. And that's been a detriment to women. And this is not just women. I know we are two women talking about it and that's our experience, but I know that men have also some societal boundaries that are just really harmful. They've been harmful. Absolutely. And women abuse men all the time too. It's not one-sided for sure. I mean, we saw that with a recent very popular trial, right? I was both kind of grateful for that in some ways that we could see so so, so visibly um, how that can happen, but then also like mortified for them that it was so public. I know, right? They They got deep and personal. My thing is, it's just... You know, I want women who are being battered to be taken seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. No, that's real. I was just listening to a woman. She spoke a long time ago, but she was talking about having been invited to a church to help them navigate a marriage that was in trouble. The husband in that relationship did a lot of yelling at at the mom, at the kids, a lot of raging and yelling. And one of the elders on the church board was really having a problem seeing anything wrong with his behavior. He ended up saying, well, I yell at my kids and wife. Like, Oh, that makes it okay. Yeah, so I don't see what's such a big deal about this man doing it with his. And the, the woman who'd been invited to be part of this dynamic that was happening there was like, well, thanks for sharing. And it sounds like you both need to do some good like healing work. And here's an example of how we will dismiss behavior in others that we are practicing. And I think that there, that's like a whole other episode on, on why, you know, certain groups of people permit certain groups of kinds of behavior. Hey, I'm up for round three. <laughs> Cause they're all doing it. Yeah, but how insightful for that man to one be able to recognize why he was having a hard time with it and then to be able to say that out loud. And then I hope he did take her feedback, but it just gave that whole group an opportunity to see like actually what you're both doing, even if you're doing it for different reasons or different, it's not exactly the same, but even though you're both doing that, like here's an opportunity for you to stop yelling at your family too. Right. <laughs> It's all twisted. So that's where I come back to like, wow, this journey to loving who I am has been so crucial and important and how I've been wired and then seeing, okay, so what does that mean? I'm wired this way. Where do I best fit in the world then? And how can I show up there and bring value wherever I go from that space, from my, from my strength and from, um, yeah, my natural sort of talents versus listening to the world say it has to look like this, this, and that. Um, and I'm much happier doing what I've been made to do versus by doing what I've been told to do, which was actually pretty miserable. Absolutely. 
You have to, you have to know that it is happening in other places. It's happening to other people. You are not alone and you can overcome this. You can. So look at you. You're doing the same thing, creating those safe spaces through this podcast and bringing like just such important conversations to the surface and giving people a place to come where they can hear that they're not alone and that it's okay to be on a journey. And how many times have you said we're human? Like that it's okay to be human here at Crime Over Cocktails and to also, (laughs) yeah, yeah, and to be a part of the hard conversations. Like you have hard, like, you know, you just mentioned another recent episode, like that's so devastating and painful. And yet the importance of us telling our stories is untapped. It's so important. And yeah, yeah. And until we're telling our stories, we, we really can't heal from parts of them until we're talk, talking about them or, or expressing them in some way. And then the gift that we give the others to hear like, oh my gosh, other people have hard things in their life. Even if they're different hard things, it elicits our compassion and our empathy and connection, feeling connected to somebody once we've been able to hear their story. And then we get to, we actually have like incredible brain dynamics happen when we share our story and it's met with empathy and compassion, like there's all this incredible, beautiful healing brain work that happens when we do that. And so you're creating spaces, whether you know it or not, like every time someone comes on your show and they're telling parts of their story, you're creating an atmosphere for that. And you do a very good job of being empathetic. Oh, thank you. Compassionate. You're welcome. Yeah. So it's so powerful. So thanks for what you do. Thank you for being on the show. I really, I love this stuff because trying to make a difference in the world. Is it going to do anything? I don't know, but at least I can say I tried. (laughs) Yeah. And it'll, it'll do more than you'll ever see because that's how it works. You know, you put your voice out there and it ripples out into places you can't see. And some people will leave a review, which everyone should to give you some feedback or they'll write to you in some other way. And some won't, they'll just treasure up the gift you gave them and you won't know, but just imagine like how, I don't know what the percentage is like 10 times. Everyone who actually tells you something is, is the impact that you're actually making. So, so know that as you're trying, you're actually also doing, you are impacting the world. So thanks to It's real. Well, thank you so much for being back on. And I'm serious about that part three. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm around. I've all, I've just bought a whole box of cocktail pop. <laughs> We won't wait so many episodes. Oh, man. Well, I guess I'll say, too, I'll just do like a shameless plug for anyone who's listening who does want to do story work. That is something that I do with people. I help them tell their story. So I have a lot of specialty in children's books just because that's kind of where I started. But I also have a lot of experience with memoir. And you mentioned mine with me earlier. While we slept, Finding Hope and Healing After Homicide is my memoir. I've got a number of other books too. But if you just, as you've been listening, going, gosh, I want that kind of healing. I want to impact people with my story. Like, reach out. Reach out. I love to help you. That's, um, that's what I've been put here to do. And I'm good at it. I can say that now. I'm really good at it. I love, love that. Absolutely. Leave how to get a hold of you. Yeah, so they can go to marcypusey.com, and that's, um, I will, if you spell it somewhere, M-A-R-C-Y-P-U-S-E-Y at gmail.com, or at gmail.com, you can email me. You can go to my website at just.com, <laughs> it's basically my name everywhere you go, Marcy Pusey on Instagram. 
I fully believe in the use of various channels for getting our stories out. And so I love doing that through books. I often help people do that from stages too, but you've got, you've got Tiffany here, crime over cocktails, using a podcast channel to get stories into the world. And we need all of the avenues to be used. So even if you're like, I don't want to write a book, but you want to be a guest on a show and share your story. You want to start, I mean, maybe I've had artists who've like just expressed themselves through fine art or through music or through dance, just do it, do it somehow privately first, if that's what you need to do. But if you want to get it into the world, reach out to one of us and we'd love to help you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. See, there you go. (laughs) All right. Thank you. It's been fun. It's always fun. I had a good time as always. Absolutely. If you would like to reach out to me, you can do so at crimeovercocktails.com. My email is crimeovercocktails at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram. All right, you guys, we'll talk crime another time. Bye. Bye.